Hey, I'm Curious City Digital and Engagement producer Maggie Civit. Today on the podcast, the story of a man who tried and failed to save the soul of Chicago. Civilization and society rests on morals. Morals rest on religion. Religion rests on the Bible and faith in God and in Jesus. He really probably couldn't change things as much as some people wanted him to. Plus, we've been hearing from a lot of small business owners about how they've been making it through the pandemic. Later in the show, we'll check in with a few of them to hear how they're coping. I think it really put everyone's feet to the fire and forced innovation. That's all coming up. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're dipping into the Curious City archive to share one of our favorite stories. This one begins with an iconic piece of Chicago pop culture. Chicago, Chicago, that title in town. Frank Sinatra's Chicago, one of his most popular songs. It's a singer's ode to the swinging times of the roaring 20s, to the decadence and hard partying of Chicago during Prohibition, when the sale and production of alcohol was illegal. Even if you've heard the song a hundred times, there's one lyric that might feel like a throwaway line. The town that Billy Sunday couldn't shut down. The town that Billy Sunday couldn't shut down. Turns out there's a fascinating story behind this line. Reporter Quinn Myers takes it from here. That lyric captures a moment in American history when the country was divided over whether you could legislate morality, with Chicago at the center of that debate. And the song's reference to Billy Sunday, one of the most influential preachers within the American evangelical movement, is what question asker Aaron Vigil has been curious about. I think I was on Navy Pier listening to a band playing them and singing them, and I'm like, what in the world is Billy Sunday doing in this song? For Aaron, the mystery of Billy Sunday goes back to his childhood. I grew up in rural Michigan in a fairly Christian fundamentalist home, and part of our existence in summer especially was going to camp meetings, tent revivals. Aaron says some of the older folks would often reference Billy Sunday nostalgically when talking about the good old days. But Aaron never really had a clear idea of who the man was. So who was Billy Sunday? And why would he have mattered in Chicago, at least enough to land in the Sinatra song? Sunday was born in Iowa during the Civil War. As a teenager, he gains a reputation for being a particularly fast runner. He was so fast, in fact, that in 1883, he gets scouted by a coach for the Chicago White Stockings, the team that later became the Cubs. In Chicago, Sunday isn't exactly an all-star, but he is popular with fans for his clean-cut image, in contrast to the reputation a lot of ballplayers had at the time for drinking and gambling. After a few seasons with the White Stockings, Billy Sunday's narrative takes a turn that would come to define the rest of his life. He begins listening to sermons at the Pacific Garden Mission, Chicago's famous evangelical church and social services center. There was a a sense of something missing in his life. And I think that probably is one of the, the things that motivates him to go to the Pacific Garden Mission. 
That's historian Robert Martin. He's the author of a Billy Sunday biography called Hero of the Heartland. Martin says almost immediately, Sunday undergoes a religious conversion. As he puts it, he got saved. Martin says after his conversion, Sunday feels increasingly called to religious work and eventually gives up baseball to work for the YMCA in Chicago. From there, he starts assisting with revival meetings across the Midwest, and eventually he starts to lead them. He doesn't have a meteoric rise to fame. It's a slow, gradual process from what he called the kerosene circuit, the small towns where there's no electricity, to larger and larger towns and cities until by the early teens, he's beginning to preach in in big cities. Big cities like Atlanta, New York, and of course, Chicago. With help from widespread newspaper and magazine coverage, Sunday slowly becomes a household name across the country. Thousands of people start to pack into temporary wooden halls, called tabernacles, to see him preach. And as the crowds grow larger and his popularity soars, Sunday's onstage behavior becomes increasingly fiery, physical, and even vitriolic. America needs to be taken down to God's bathhouse and the hose turned on her and the time isn't far distant when the wheels of God's judgment are going to go sweeping through this old God-hating world. Sunday would often play up the sports imagery from his past by catching imaginary baseballs, sliding for home, and boxing with the devil. Whiskey-soaked, Sabbath-breaking, infidel, bootlegging old world is bound to the cross of Jesus Christ by the golden chains of love. That wild energy and his theatrics soon became just as much of a draw as the gospel message he was spreading. Martin says Sunday preached about a lot of social and political issues, but there was one he championed more than the rest, prohibition. His message is resonating with the concerns and fears of a lot of Americans. And so that helps him have a broader appeal than maybe he might otherwise have had. More than three decades after he first came to the city to play baseball, in 1918, Sunday returns to Chicago for what he calls an extended crusade. His tabernacle was built along the eastern end of Chicago Avenue, not far from the Water Tower Shopping Center. It reportedly held up to 16,000 people, which he would often fill several times a day, encouraged by daily coverage in the Chicago Tribune. Many of Sunday's sermons in Chicago railed against the liquor dealers and the wets, people who were pro-alcohol. But although prohibition would go into effect less than two years later, Sunday's moral stand didn't have the kind of reach or influence he hoped it would. The narrative of Chicago during prohibition would come to be dominated by mobsters, bootleggers, and vice, everything Sunday stood against. And in 1922, a songwriter named Fred Fisher decides to capture this moment. He writes a song called Chicago, which includes the Billy Sunday lyric. This was more than 30 years before Frank Sinatra would make it famous. Fisher's song speaks directly to Sunday's ultimate failure to tame the Chicago of the Roaring Twenties. Sunday did well in Chicago, but I don't think you could say that he really changed the lifestyle of the city very much. And the author, Fred Fisher, who wrote that song, understood that the cities were what they were. And despite a forceful figure like Sunday, he really probably couldn't change things as much as some people wanted him to, or actually sometimes thought he did. So Chicago, the song, doesn't really take off until Sinatra gets a hold of it in the late 1950s. I don't believe it came to Sinatra's attention until 
he started to do research and plan the film The Joker is Wild. That's Chuck Granada, a Frank Sinatra expert who has authored numerous projects on The Singer. Granada says Sinatra recorded the song for the movie, but his version never made it in. Chicago was then released as a single in 1957. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. In many ways, the song has come to represent a romanticized image of Chicago in the 20s. Billy Sunday's inclusion becomes a sort of jab at temperance, an affirmation of the values Sunday despised and Frank Sinatra celebrated. The town that Billy Sunday couldn't shut down. The town that Billy Sunday could not shut down, despite prohibition and despite trying to uh, rid the town of excess and vices. He wasn't able to do that. And I think that's something that Sinatra certainly would have admired. In the time of their life, I saw a man, he danced with his wife in Chicago, Chicago, my hometown. Hey, it's Maggie here again. Thanks to reporter Quinn Myers for that story. Chicago, Chicago. Billy Sunday couldn't shut down Chicago. And while the pandemic has forced some small businesses to shutter, many more have proven resilient. That's coming up next. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I'll show you around. I love it. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. A few weeks ago, we answered a question about what people could do to help support local businesses. And afterwards, dozens of small businesses reached out to tell us how they've been doing. Many said they've had to completely change the way they operate, or even change their business entirely. And in the process of doing that, they've developed some unexpected collaborations and innovations. They've also been reminded about how important their employees are. Like Ana Hernandez, who owns moving company 606 Movers. At the beginning of the pandemic, she felt like her workers were at risk. While we were requiring our employees to wear masks, a lot of our customers weren't necessarily taking it as seriously as we were at that point. It wasn't always a popular thing. So Hernandez decided to do something about it. Sometimes she'd call up the customers, but she'd also have her employees talk with customers face to face. There's something different about having one of our crew members stand in front of them saying, I want you in this case to take care of me the way that I'm taking care of you. And I think that was able to just kind of resonate with people a little bit more. COVID has reinforced her belief that we have a much larger, more systemic set of issues at play with workers like hers. I think we've, as a society, essentially deemed, it's going to sound a little bit harsh, but that some people are disposable. We're not really as concerned with how well they're faring because we think that we have this endless supply of what they consider like low-skilled labor, but this just isn't the case. And Hernandez has been able to keep everyone employed. That's in part because there's a demand for movers. Business for her has returned more or less to normal. 
But what about businesses that have had to reimagine their entire business model? The Laugh Factory Chicago Comedy Club has been shut for almost a year, but will finally reopen on March 6th. Curtis Shaw Flagg, president of operations, says that when they first closed, they had to let 25 staffers go and cancel nearly 150 booked acts. The club then had to completely revamp everything if it wanted to stay afloat. I think it really put everyone's feet to the fire and forced innovation, right? And for entertainment, for live entertainment, for live comedy, for us, I think it really forced us to embrace the digital world. And that digital world proved way more successful than expected. Live streaming was a way for us to add a revenue stream. But what you found out was it actually allowed an unlimited revenue stream. Like there's unlimited capacity to give the world a virtual stream link and they can watch a live show from like the comfort of their home. These shows allowed them to book acts again and bring back some of the staff. And the pandemic also led to something else unexpected. Soon after the shutdown, Shaw Flag started coordinating clothing drives and distributing the items himself. Then he found out a colleague was actually doing the same thing. So we kind of collaborated together. We're not using the theater and they're familiar with the theater. So it became kind of a warehouse while it was not being used for stand-up comedy. And he says that other comedians have volunteered their time to help. And it's growing into something more permanent. They'll move the donations operation to a storefront next door. And we're going to get some racks and some shelving. And we're going to open it up for a few hours a week for people to just be able to come in and select items that they want. And I have very high hopes that this becomes something that can really reach a lot of people. Loom and Edgewater has also made some changes they think will stick. The store, which is a social enterprise for Catholic charities, sells handmade clothing, bags, and accessories, all made by refugee women. Rebecca Hamlin Green of Loom says that because many of the women who work there were in high-risk groups for COVID-19, they stopped allowing customers to shop inside. We really wanted to put their safety ahead of everything. But there was still a lot of foot traffic outside the shop, and Hamlin Green says that sparked an idea. We thought we would capitalize on that and actually fill our windows with our product and with information about our studio and our participants and then give our shoppers who are foot traffic a chance to actually purchase items directly from our window. People window shopping could scan QR codes on items on display and be taken to the shop's website where they could make an instant purchase. And it worked. It's a great platform for outreach for refugees and migrant populations. And after the pandemic, we envisioned this being incorporated into our retail practice. And she says for as long as the pandemic lasts, they'll continue to adjust and find new ways to keep going for as long as it takes. And that's what so many of the people we spoke with plan to do, too. Additional reporting for the story came from Curious City intern Natalie Dahlia. Curious City is produced by Stephen Jackson and Joe Dassault, and edited by Alexandra Salomon. Monica Eng is our intrepid reporter. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. Don't forget to send us your questions about Chicago and the region. Go to wbez.org slash Curious City. I'm Maggie Civit.
Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.